Ryan, Ryan. Ethan, Ethan. We are live. I just started talking to you like we were on the phone. I, I realized that there are people actually filling up in the room right now. We are live. It is House of Strauss. It is industry talk. We're uh, two very strange, nerdy individuals uh, dive in to issues of sports and culture. And, of course, uh, viewership, listenership, uh, whatever's resonating out there, Ryan. How you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I just had a friend from college get elected mayor of Milwaukee, and I'm really happy for him. Oh, if I had a nickel for every time I heard that, I mean, I'd be a You'd have man. 10 cents because I brought it up before. <laughs> that is very true, but it, you never it's know. An, where these, it's inflation. <laughs> you never know where these things can lead. I mean, uh, I was talking about the trajectory of one Jerry Springer with a friend earlier today, and I remembered a uh, former mayor of Cincinnati. So these uh, mid-sized Midwestern cities becoming mayor I, could I'd lead to say, a very interesting life. I'd say put a pin in Cavalier Johnson because I think everybody in this room will be hearing from him eventually. Oh, okay. I did not anticipate that this would be where the conversation starts, but well, give us I a quick either, but give us a we, quick summary. Why? Why are we on the lookout? I I just so he was um he he's he's very well spoken he is he has like a little bit of like a Barack Obama cadence he is an extremely diligent worker like he he used to stay in on Friday and Saturday nights at UW Madison and um and study he he's he's like one of like 10 kids between like half brothers and step kids um oh he's bringing he's a democrat but he is working to bring the republican national convention to milwaukee now and that is like lauded by people like scott walker and stuff for huh. that okay well that is the quirk right there everything else seemed a little generic i gotta be honest but that that's an interesting quirk. An across-the-aisle type person this day and age, you just so rarely see it. So, yeah, it's... um, it's, He, he it's won a, with 70% of the vote today. Okay. Hey, you know, I here's what I know, looking at the political scene. I know the Democrats need young talent. There's something paradoxical about a party that derives so much support from the youth vote relative to the other side that just has had nobody on their bench no talent coming up from the youthful ranks ever since Obama, who was so popular with young people. It's been a paradox. So maybe it's just, I guess, a wait until it happens. Uh, right now, it's it's the geriatrics that running things. It is, but I, I'm bullish on him. He's also, he, he's like really been pushing to hire more police officers too, which is not a normal um, Democrat position the last few years. But I want to talk, uh, that's, I understand that everyone in here doesn't know who he is, so um, <laughs> you will, though. But let's talk about Elon Musk and Twitter, because <laughs> this was incredible. And I think like a lot of people are talking about it, but not enough people are talking about it enough. Mm, it is known by all and yet underrated. I, I don't even know what your take is on it, because I know we both have thoughts on this and we track this space, but this is not something we've texted about. So I, like the listener, leaning in with rapt attention. Okay, so just real quick, he bought a little bit less than 10% of the company and they he made a deal with the, with the people running Twitter 
I won't buy the whole company, but you have to give me a seat on the board and listen to me. And so he, I, it, it came out that he, what, one of the big reasons that he did it was that Twitter suspended the Babylon Bee, which is the conservative <laughs> onion, onion yeah. for um, calling a, a trans woman a man. And it was uh, like Rachel Levine, whole- if I, if I recall correctly, the, is it a health and human services secretary? Is, is I, I, I don't remember the specifics, but does it like honestly matter? Uh, I guess it, well, kind of in ways that are a little bit fraught to talk about, but yes. <laughs> but it could have been anybody in, um, who had transitioned from woman to man, but a lot of Republicans were getting banned for doing that. And, um, you know, the Democrats, the, the, the like far left who can be like very vile and, um, you know, uh, to use their words, abusive and mm. things of that nature don't get banned in proportionality from Twitter as the people on the other side. And I would imagine that is a dynamic that is coming to an end. So we're either mm. going to see people from the right stop getting banned or people in the left are going to get banned in really an equal manner. Yeah, because that game had been going on for a while of just one side getting the quality control. And I think the Hunter Biden laptop, uh, that was something of a watershed where it seemed quite obvious that this was not about people acting as arbiters in service of fairness. It was about trying to tilt the terrain in their favored political direction. So there's been a tremendous loss of trust at the same time. It doesn't seem like the conservative movement, for whatever reason, can really build an alternative. And maybe that's its own Well, they tried to with Parwar, but it yeah. was like there was really, you know, gross conversations going on there because they build it as the anything goes. And um, but like, you know, that was the one two punch is these um, social media networks. So like Twitter, Facebook and also like Google, YouTube combined with an access like they suppress the New York Post accurate reporting on um, on Hunter Biden's laptop, which was like the re I knew that it, I'm like consider myself as like a very sharp arbiter of real news and fake news. And the reason I knew it was real the, the day that they released that story wasn't like about the the like big guy emails or Ukraine or China, they ran a separate story of like text between him and his daughter asking with her asking yeah. him for money. She like asked him for money to go to an Uber to the airport. Cause she'd spent all her money. And he's like, you know, I'm not a rich man, like, or whatever, like I'll do it this time, but not again. And it was just a type of conversation that literally would have been impossible to fabricate. And so that was how I knew it was real. But the um, the social networks like suppress the story, like threat. They promised to like fact check it, which they never did. And then a bunch of mainstream outlets ran these like um, letters from <laughs> the intelligence agency, like saying yeah. that it reeks of Russian disinformation with like no evidence. Yeah. And, 
So the one-two punch of like people not being able to see the underlying story with everything that they were allowed to see were these like people who are actually committing fake news and saying that it was Russian disinformation was just so patently unfair in favor yeah. of one political party versus another that um it, on on a story where it's in obvious that it would have swung an election anyway i mean it was a bit of a bank shot we're not talking about joe biden necessarily maybe it's joe biden's selling of influence maybe he knew i i don't know i think we i think we think that he did at this point but we didn't yeah. know that at the time and, and there wouldn't yep. have been really time for that to be sussed out and to connect with the American people. And so it, it just seemed like such a panic. It was revealing of the anxiety of the people running these institutions, that they didn't trust the public, that they don't believe in any sort of fair discourse, that they're just trying to propagandize them at, while acting as as these um, as these dispassionate moderators. And it's, it's kind of amazing uh, the extent of the arrogance where – they don't even correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe somebody in the chat can tell me and, and call in. I mean, have they really banned people from the other side? In what they have, sense? but it, you know, YouTube certainly has. YouTube, yeah. you know, people are getting up in arms when like far left people get banned from there. Because I'm, ta I'm talking, talking Twitter, it, it, and I guess to a certain degree, Facebook. Facebook recently there was um they literally banned the sitting president of the United States. They did do that. They did that was something that happened. Facebook recently, I think, was censoring uh, the expose on BLM's misallocated funding that came from New York Magazine. No, no, they were, they were they were censoring a different New York Post story. Maybe it was an aggregation of the NY Mag, but it was the Post mm. again getting censored. Well, this and is the, like, New York this Mag is the like social the media cacophony. We don't know what's real or fake right now as we talk extemporaneously. <laughs> the, um, but, so Musk, getting back to him. Yes. He, he, the the people who are on the board and the CEO and whatever knew that he does have the means to literally just buy the whole thing and put them all out of work. And so they made a deal with them that they're going to take his input. Um, Charles Gasparino, a reporter for Fox Business and The Post, said Man. that, like, cynically, Twitter knows that there's a red wedding coming in November and they want to insulate themselves from the inevitable congressional hearings over things that like what we've just been talking about. And so that um, kind of yielding to Musk and allowing him on the board is going to like soften the blow of when they're subjected to all that. Because they can yeah. say, oh, no, we've already been reforming. Look at what we're doing. Yeah, he can have this sort of shadow influence. It seems perfect for him. Um I don't know if he wants to undergo, uh, undergo the project of running Twitter and taking all the opposition that uh, that will incur because Twitter well and all the work a, he runs an electric vehicle yeah. company and we're we're told that he, this is like we're going to replace our whole oil fleet in the next decade. Um, so he yeah. he has some other things going on, and that's like amongst he's also like runs space exploration and so he, he's got a few other things on his plate he he does and i mean everybody's going to come after you this is contested territory it's not about the profitability of twitter it's about the power one has to shift the discourse jeff bezos doesn't buy the washington post for 
its profitability. It's uh, Although the ability. Although it did turn it very profitable. Like, right. he came along right at the right time, too. I mean, that's, that's very impressive. The guy knows how to turn a buck, but I don't think that's why he bought it. I think no, that was it wasn't, but incidentally, they have been very profitable. Hey, man, the guy is richest or among them uh, in the world for a reason, but uh, so He's this the is the richest contested. on despot that we know of. <laughs> Indeed. Well, he's not a he. He may or may not be a despot, but not in the sense that I'm talking about. Yeah. Um. So it's contested territory. Uh, governments are involved. Uh, you are you. You are a huge target if you're running Twitter and you're opening yourself up to. Uh, I don't know various legal actions as well, and it just seems like this is probably a good compromise in the broader culture war that Musk has this influence. Uh, it means that maybe the people running Twitter can't go too far in one direction, but Musk is not running Twitter. So it, it doesn't become this completely conservative run thing. Not that Musk is overtly conservative, but I, I mean, the man is a paradox. I, I, I was just interviewing Chuck Klosterman about his book on the 90s and, and Klosterman uh, references that famous line of the late 90s. It might have been Charles Barkley. It might have been Chris Rock of at that point, the the greatest golfer is black and the greatest rapper is white to just show how topsy turvy uh, it, it all is. And Musk is this thing in our culture where the greatest uh, climate activist is a conservative icon. Uh that's the world we're living in right now uh, with the company he runs. Say, um, it's a little bit saddening that he isn't calling out like China for shutting down his factories over COVID protocols when he was so vocal about that in California. I understand why, it's, but it's a little bit like I think if we ding NBA players for their silence, yeah. he needs to be um, in that category as well. I would say so. I also wonder, I mean, there's a certain kind of normal conservative who dislikes China for the reasons I think we, we, we all would. Their government, clearly, not the people. Um, but there is an even a harder core conservative. And maybe Musk might be that. I don't know who looks at China and says, we need some more of that. So it's sort <laughs> of, uh, it's hard to know. It's hard to know. I'm sure it's just about the money in this case, uh, yes. as it is for so many so many corporations. So yes, it is, uh, I think a relatively positive outcome. I don't know how much well, it was done that, for it. I don't think we're going to be seeing like Babylon B get banned again. Like yeah. that's... And, and to be fair on the Rachel Levine thing, I argued with a friend of mine about this, who was saying that that's okay because it was transphobic for the Babylon B. Uh, the joke they used was, uh, that Rachel Levine wins uh, man of the year, which isn't a very good joke, but, I, you can't ban people for that. I'm sorry, but you can't. You can't call something a phobic or an ism and ban things that maybe 50% of the population, if not 60% of the population, would believe to be completely fine. That's just, yeah, I guess you can do it. If you run a company, you can literally do it. Yeah, but, but everyone not... who was like saying and cheering that Twitter was like a private company and they can do what they want recoiled in horror at must joining the board and yes. like they, they want they want all of these like tech barons to have censorship powers but no not that one yeah everybody just wants to win but i think there's this greater issue out there it's not often addressed enough like why why do we want free speech what is 
What is it all about? What's the point, right? Uh, it's this ideal, and I'm talking not constitutionally. I'm talking the general idea that people can express their beliefs in a democracy and not face harsh consequences. That general idea, I think, uh, should be upheld because we're more likely to solve problems if we're getting everybody's best shot. We're more likely to fix things, wisdom of crowds, if people can express what they truly believe. Once everybody starts saying whatever they think they need to say to avoid punishment, we're going to get very stupid solutions to pressing problems. And I, I say we're going to. I really should say it. In I, past think, tense. I think I think I think you might be able to use the past tense there. Yes. And yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the recent past tense. Not no, I could point to specific tense. things. I I think so many people were talking out of complete fear in the summer of 2020 um, and not just conveying what they actually thought was happening. They were all trying to fall in line. And what is the aftermath of it all? I, I see just even people on the left are saying, yeah, it didn't really add up to much. It seems that BLM misallocated the funds. There was a lot of corruption. There were no uh, federal reforms worth anything. And it's not something you're allowed to point out and remain in uh polite company, it would seem, but the murder rate absolutely spiked. So uh, maybe uh, on an order in two years of 10,000 extra dead people. I mean, so bad things happen when people are pretending their beliefs in public. It, it has real consequences. And I, I point to those real consequences in the way that pro-censorship people do, because they always invoke how there are these horrible consequences to speech. I would say there are horrible consequences to the suppression of speech. And we've seen them. We've received an object lesson in it. And so I hope whatever comes to pass in the near future uh, is something that allows for more honest discussion. Oh, we're, we're totally aligned in there. And so it's probably like boring for us to just like agree and pat each other on the back yeah. for our liberalism. So, some, call it, but, some call it chemistry, you know, like some the, people like that. Um, it, no, I, I totally agree. And you need, you need um, the power of a free press and free speech to expose official corruption, malfeasance, stupidity, all of the above. If you don't have that and you let the people who rise to the top by being the most loyal to the ruling party to just have carte blanche to decide what they want, I don't think that that's like what everybody who came to America came here to live in. That's what people... Well, we're fleeing the rest of the world for. And well, so, and then, but here's where it gets tricky because it's not a stable system that's reliant on some uh, billionaire to show up and try to provide some kind of counterbalance. It seems like we don't have a system that can really assure this in this era where the public square has become these private companies. So while Musk might uh, restore some order of openness. It's funny. I feel like our take on this is so outside what I see uh, in blue check media land for many of our friends and, and colleagues, where I, I believe at the Washington Post, they were saying that this is a threat to free speech that Musk joined, but it, it can theoretically open up some free speech opportunities, but it seems like there's no, there's no real system in place, Ryan, to guarantee anything right now. No. Well, that's what we went through 
with parlor, like the one two punch where a real story gets suppressed on social media networks, then a, a rogue social media network emerges and, you know, Amazon Web Services and a bunch of other of the same companies that are like doing the censorship, just say, no, this whole platform can't exist. And it gets totally mm. erased from the planet. And so, yeah, you need Elon Musk, one of like the several richest people in the world to just decide enough is enough and buy enough of one of these public companies to rattle the cages. But it's not um, the system that existed pre, you know, five years ago. Yes. Well, it reminds me a little bit of um, Ryan Holiday's book, Conspiracy, uh, that details Peter Thiel taking out Gawker. And um, the basic ethos of Peter Thiel eventually was nobody else is going to do it. I guess I have to do it. This is from his perspective regarding Gawker as this blight on society. And that can be debated. Uh, I think in the end that it did more harm than good. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people yeah. think it did more good than harm, and it is what it is, and there are different opinions about... Well, we it didn't really destroy Gawker because all the people there just migrated to new jobs where it's no longer concentrated, and it's now like 20 outlets that all try and sound like Gawker did, and you can't distinguish them from one another. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's a decent argument as well, that Gawker was so influential that maybe it won in the end. Uh, but the uh, book starts with a Walker Percy uh, quote from Lancelot. Uh, I couldn't stand it. I still can't stand it. I can't stand the way things are. I cannot tolerate this age. What is more, I won't. That was my discovery that I didn't have to. And I think that is the outlook of a Peter Thiel, I think that's the outlook of an Elon Musk. It's this sense of, I don't have to accept the way things are. And so perhaps there will be a preference cascade among these super rich people. Maybe it reveals how the more populist conservative types uh, are wrong to demonize the rich. The rich are their only chance at scoring a win or two in the culture war. Nothing else is going to accomplish it, perhaps. Yeah, it, it, it isn't an ironic um, but I, I think I want to, can we pivot to the women's basketball things? I have like a <laughs> yeah. stat. Can we find been... a topic that is more unrelated to the topic we were talking about? Yes. Yes, we can. I know it's a right hand. It's a hard, right. Hard um, segue. <laughs> so the, um, the, the numbers came out for South Carolina versus UConn today and that game averaged four and a half million viewers. The WNBA finals across four games averaged about 500,000 viewers. Yeah. Maybe 600,000. So the, the, this was eight to nine times the average of one game. And it was over twice the combination of if you added up all four games of the WNBA finals together. Yeah. And so why is women's college basketball so much more popular than um, the WNBA when there's like nothing else I can think of where the amateur sport is more popular than the professionals? I have a theory. I think for whatever reason in women's sports, when you attach it to another point of pride, 
it tends to do better than it just existing on its own merits. And so when it's the women's national team in soccer, um, it's patriotism, it's wrapped around the flag that allows it a kind of popularity that it just cannot achieve if we're talking about cities, playing for New York, playing for whatever cities have been in these leagues. I don't know, honestly. Uh, That just doesn't seem to inspire the same amount of emotional uh, connection. And it seems, I guess, similar with uh, these colleges uh, where it's attached to the college and alumni pride. And it means something perhaps good about your college, if your college can, can win a big championship. Um, and I think that that might be part of it. Um, and maybe it's also that the brand of the NCAA is the bigger brand right there, and that's helping it. And it, it, you know what you're getting. You know you're getting a single elimination tournament. You know if it's the tourney when you're watching uh, that it's win or go home. So you just know what you're getting. It's uh, not on opposite NFL games well, in that, the same that, city. That certainly helps. Versus the WNBA, which kind of tries to run their own brand. And anything you ever hear is just this wellspring of angst, it seems, out of that league. Um, there might be a lot of angst within women's college basketball, but that doesn't the public doesn't seem to really be hearing about that in the way that they might from the WNBA. Well, there was a big, you know, USA Today story talking about how much more resources go into men's sports than women's last week, and it was pegged to all this. But yeah. I think people's eyes just gloss over at those on, in a lot of cases now, which, like, isn't to say that it's unimportant, but I, it just doesn't meet people a lot of other than, like, outside of the media, like normal yeah. people who aren't sitting on Twitter and debating this all day. It doesn't cut through to something that they later discuss in other conversations. Um, yeah. But – yeah. I mean, the college thing, though, I don't think I can't get into that. It has to do with like, you know, school patriotism, because like the majority of the company, I guess they do care about UConn because they've been in it so many times. But like South Carolina, I don't know. It's not um, people don't have like big, not a well subscribed school. I know they've won before. I'm not diminishing them, but I just don't think that. It's anything. I don't think it's quite on the level of the USWNT. I, I will say, when I was in the South, I really mean North Carolina, and I was visiting Tom Haberstroh, I was struck by how so many of the houses have a college flag, and so you would see the various Southern schools represented. Of and at Tom's, of course, it was Wake Forest where he went, and I didn't see any South Carolina flag anywhere. Is what I would report back with. <laughs> the that anecdote confirms my no. Yeah, I, I, it, it I actually it. do. The, I get. I I understand that the, these schools are brands in the way that the WNBA franchises are, but we can't talk about the WNBA like it's a toddler anymore. Like it's mm. been around for twenty years, and so some of these steps that. Like it, I, their gameplay, I actually think is good. Like it's it, the gameplay of UConn, South Carolina, isn't any better than Sky versus Mercury, and I would probably say Sky Mercury is at a higher level. But mm. the marketing of the college basketball is has to be vastly superior. I don't understand any other way you can explain uh, an audience disparity like that. But yeah, it's it's pretty remarkable. 
Um, and I think it's a good thing to identify and you're not hearing it talked about. I mean, you're identifying something that as far as I know is falling through the cracks that the people who care most about this issue are not going to discuss what they will do is they will celebrate. They will celebrate this number. And it is a big number to get over 4 million on ESPN for, for women's college basketball. They will celebrate it. They'll do that kind of meme of making the different capitalizations and uh you know nobody cares about women's college sports sarcastically but they're not going to ask the more pertinent question which is why is this working that the WNBA isn't and it's these star like the stars of the WNBA are playing in these games that millions of people are watching late in the women's tournament it's not like they're distributed all over the place they're at the same four or five schools every year and so i it's i don't understand what they should be i i need i would love to hear like a plan from a marketing person of what the liz liz cambage's brand is that toxic that it is sinking the wmba relative to the college women i mean maybe i I don't know no but it's like the proportions of it it's not like it's doubling it it's doubling the combined four game finals series yeah. but that has stars in it that has like um, Candace Parker and Brittany Griner, you know? And so that, that needs to be fleshed out what the reasons for it are and corrected because it, it's not something it's like, I, I said the, the WNBA isn't this like four or five year old, fledgling entity they've had a lot of time to well, try okay. and catch up to the college i've game. got a random we're free associating here maybe what the WNBA needs to do is just play during the nba season because there is an aspect of drafting off the general awareness of march uh for the college women so i don't know how the hell they would pull it off but maybe the WNBA needs to figure out a way to do that and to make their finals happen right after the NBA finals. And maybe that that's the ultimate reform here. I don't know that something and they're, they're not like the, we're going to see a real groundswell of, to use your word, angst. Like if you think it's been bad before, wait until right about like doing a watch checking gesture, wait about until right now when the stars can't go get these paychecks in Russia anymore. And so, like, they, they've been making two, three times as much in Russia, the biggest players, and that's kept it a little bit quiet, um, how low they get paid, like, what the salary cap is. The salary cap for a whole team in the WNBA is, like, a little bit over a million dollars. It's And like, then you combine how you'll be allowed to make fun of them without fearing being banned on Twitter. And it's really just going to be a vice grip that is going to make them completely enraged. Now, obviously, I'm no, joking, maybe, but maybe, maybe, I don't know. I mean, things have been getting pretty crazy. Things have been going in some weird directions. So, yeah, I agree with you, though. It's going to make them more displeased with the situation. But then that creates more public uh, complaining, which is, I think, also not good for their brand. And it's just going to keep going absent any sort of criticism which is i think also uh, oddly part of their problem i i think criticism can be good right not too much criticism but i think you know i think a lot of people 
when I talked about the NBA's issues would uh, kind of worry that I was making those issues real. No, those issues were real. Uh, it, it doesn't help when the entire media apparatus pretends them away. It gives them less of an impetus to really address them and to fix them. And I think the WNBA has been going through that for a quarter century now where nobody ever criticizes ever. So nobody inside running it feels that they have to do anything and everything is somebody else's fault. That's the situation. It does not encourage greatness. It's well, it, I think you're going to see a lot of, um, being like, hey, why does the NWSL, why can, why can the New York NWSL team sell a crypto ad that's like bigger than a whole WNBA salary cap? If they make no other revenue, it would more than cover the salary cap. Like that's before TV rights, before the gate, before concessions, before any other sponsorships. Yeah. Like they're just paying the whole WNBA salary cap with a crypto ad, like why they're, they're way younger than the WNBA and soccer is a less popular sport in America than basketball. Why are they passing you? I, I, these are very good questions that you, I guess, are not allowed to uh, ask and remain respectable uh, because no criticism appears to be allowed. And I still not sure what, what is, what they're trying to accomplish or what the end goal is. I wrote a big article on it, um, I guess about a month ago or so, uh, that it was one of those secretly people told me good job, but not very much shared in public, which I guess is something that my Substack specializes in. Uh, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> Wait, so yeah. maybe it's, I think the WNBA would be better off independent from the NBA, which is like an insane thing to say because of how long, the oh, I agree. NBA subsidized it for. I agree. But it's the kind of like this, you know, colony of the WNBA that isn't, of the NBA that isn't, um, you know, meticulously tended to. And maybe it needs to be independent. Yeah, I agree that it's been a crutch that uh, has not allowed them to grow and flourish. Um, and I think we can say, and this is, a, a perhaps progressive opinion on this uh, live call in over here, which is that success is possible, not not at the level of the men's leagues uh, necessarily, but if they could women... be more successful, and I'd argue they yeah. should be. Yeah, I, I would say too, and I would say it's hey, object lesson: women's college basketball. That is a real audience right there to get over four mil. That's legit. That is legitimate. So. Again, WNBA should be on the clock. Doesn't seem like it will happen, but hey, we, we care. We care about the WNBA. <laughs> we have, we have the 80 one. people hanging out our every <laughs> Well, eventually it gets up to one or 2,000 on the app. So, you know, eventually uh, we will be having a massive influence. And you know what, Ryan? We have the right people. We, have we, the we influence people. the influencers. None of them call in, you know, speaking of like consuming, but not mm. publicly. But <laughs> that's been a funny thing because you've been telling me about how there are people in media who, uh, who are we a guilty pleasure? I don't know what we are, but people check this thing out. <laughs> I, well, so. you don't hear other like our takes really aren't shared by very many people. So 
I don't know, whatever. Yeah, um, they, they're either shared by like 60% of the people and none of the media is what it right, feels so like. So I dominated our topic selection. What is it's okay. what do you want to talk about? It's it's a, it's okay. I mean, I like when you when you pick the topics. I'm a better off guard than a point guard. Uh, I think the Daniel Medvedev situation is one it's a funny one to me uh, because uh, Medvedev for people who don't follow tennis, he's one of the best tennis players in the world. He is from Russia. Wimbledon, Wimbledon, however I'm supposed to pronounce that, yeah. uh, is uh, perhaps not going to allow him to play. I'm not sure what would have happened if he could have played at the French Open. He had a, an injury, so there, there's no French Open regardless. But uh, the All England Club ready to ban Daniel Medvedev uh, amid fears, I'm reading the headline, that his win could boost Vladimir Putin, uh, and I've read that they are in talks with the uh, British government, uh, and I just think this is completely absurd. I know it's not my country. I know that uh, it's not the United States. It's so easy to see something like this happening here, though. It is, although I would guess if I were a gambling man that the U.S. Open would not ban uh, the U.S. the last U.S. Open winner, and they would uh, they would allow him to play. But I could see a moral panic like that. Well, we're I, further away from this conflict than the U.K. is, but yeah, yeah. And I I think there are a lot of things going on. One is I don't see many people saying hell yeah. Maybe I miss that. I don't see many people who think this is a good idea uh, who are encouraging this kind of decision. Uh, so I think that's its own revelation, but I just think it cuts against the spirit of sports. I don't, I don't like when things like this happen. Um, I don't think that you should be viewed as, uh, somebody who's to be held accountable for the guy, a dictator, uh, in some instances, uh, running your country. That just doesn't seem, that seems to be an unfair reason to discriminate. And if you think that this guy needs to be held to account, then Hey, they have media. Maybe ask him a question. He can dodge it uh, because he lives in a country where journalists do get killed. Uh, maybe he's not going to address it. But if that's what you need to do, that's what you do. You he don't. Did. He said, it. "I want there to be peace everywhere." Like that's what his answer was about it. But yeah. um, it's just—it's—it's it's a tyrannical thing to do to these players. It's almost being no better than the dictator. The position that you're putting him in because you're banning him from competition if he won't condemn a dictator who has the power to just torture all of his friends and family with like no accountability like yeah. what what type of position are you putting this man in that he has to choose between <laughs> like the second best player in your sport i mean what is going on overall with tennis I and know it's the weird because you know it Alexander Ovechkin plays in the NHL. Like, there's a number of Russian players in the NHL. And Ovechkin, like, I don't think he's weighed in on this particular conflict, but he's been, you know, socially branded with Putin throughout his career as, like, one of the best players in the world. And he seems to be, like, you know, just carrying on and playing his sport. And so I don't understand, like, I don't see, it, it just doesn't seem like bad. I, I do think, it. I do think that there is a slight difference between the United States and the UK in this respect. I think Europe, I know some would say the UK is not part of Europe, but 
over there, as much as we think that there has been uh, some war hysteria in response to Putin's invasion of Ukraine over here, and my neighbor has a Ukraine flag flying outside his house, and you see that it's more so there's more of a panic over it. Uh, where these countries are closer, where there's more of a history of, of conflict before uh, between European nations, where the nukes would arrive sooner. Um, I think you're seeing that, that uh, when you hear from people in some of these countries and you just see these radical shifts where Germany suddenly remilitarizes out of nowhere. And so I think that that's probably a factor here and why a guy like Ovechkin can kind of carry on um, but it seems to be more of a problem in the UK. Yeah, no, I can buy that, but it's, you know, I hate um, things that just aren't in service of anything. Yeah. And so I don't understand what this is supposed to accomplish. Like, is there some, like the sanctions and all of this stuff, it doesn't seem it's, like they, it, they're going to do anything. It seems emotionally rooted uh, versus uh, towards a goal. And it was it was interesting. There was um, some Chinese official on some American news show. And uh, I, I can't remember. He was an ambassador to some such. And uh, the, the anchor was was pressing him on why why not to condemn Russia. And he just sort of responded, well, they're our neighbor and we want to have a good relationship with our neighbor. And it was just sort of shocking to see a real politique explanation absence, any sense of moral fervor uh, or condemnation uh, uh, on the American stage. And it kind of allowed me to realize that so many of our conversations are just dripping in uh, moralizing and sometimes for a reason. I mean, this war is awful. Thousands of people are are getting killed, but yeah, mo- the videos are just horrifying. Yeah, of the civilians getting massacred in the so, street for like, you know, I don't. It, it's so it we can it, we can go till the end yeah. of time about how like atrocious it is to watch, but at the same time, banning a Russian tennis player for being Russian. That's when, not the straw that's going to break the bear's back is what you're saying. That's not what's going to do. It doesn't do anything. It makes them, it, it, it gives, if anything, it gives Putin a, like a rallying cry over how the, the West is like genuinely. Um, yeah. That they are what they accuse us of being. It robs, the West of moral authority. So I just hope that some sense of uh, morality and sensibility uh, can prevail there. I just think it's foolish. I thought, I mean, this was a little different, but the, uh, the, the Djokovic banning, I know the government of Australia perhaps was more of a mover on that one. Uh, I thought that was bad too. It's just, I don't like these petty. Now you're banned. You wouldn't be able to come here right now with our rules. Like, yeah, I, unless the unless the U.S. changes its laws, he won't be able to compete in the U.S. Open. So I don't think we can say we're yeah. morally superior to Australia here. Yeah, and I think that is a fit of peak. I'm against it, and I'm gaining confidence in being against it uh, with how the worm has turned on that particular issue. Before there was to dip your toe in it a little bit, kind of say it in a whisper, but now more and more, it's no. We need to we need to move on. Uh, these places in Berkeley that still require the masks. I mean, hey, you know, I guess it's a free 
country-ish, uh, you're allowed to do it, but uh, I, I don't really think that's the way forward. And it's going to look increasingly antiquated, I think, anyway, as as time moves on. But yeah, so, I mean, those are our, we, we're doing a lot of geopolitics over here, a lot of weighty issues. Uh, if anybody has yeah. a take and would like to call in, as is the name of the app, uh, we're happy to take any phone calls of yours. Have we gotten like, have we gotten to the docket? Is there anything else in the docket, Ryan? No, that we, 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 this is the first time we've ever gotten to everything on the docket. Do you want to talk about the poll you sent me with how people feel about their economics? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll take that. And you know, maybe we take calls, maybe we don't. Uh, but, uh, yes, uh, this poll, well, I thought, we'll take calls if we have calls, if we got no calls, no, we don't have their yeah. input. We yeah, you know, but it's, 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 it's okay. But okay. So I think that this, this poll civics, I love civics tracking polls and civics. It's actually aligned with the left. It's run out of the daily coast shop. So it's a progressive polling, uh, outfit. And I do think that a lot of their polling results skew even maybe a little bit lefty, but I think that they're so valuable because they track so many issues. Uh, a lot of issues aren't tracked. You know, once something is kind of in the news a bit, they track it. So you can see the public's response to BLM over years, right, on the civics tracking poll. I think that we, we like talking about the cultural issues of the day. I try to avoid saying culture war because it feels like that's a loaded term and it's only culture war if you disagree with the media's take on culture. Uh, but, the, you know, those are big. Those matter. Uh, but the main mover right here, uh, I think, it can just be seen in this tracking poll on civics uh, called Family Finances Last Year. It's just people saying, are, is your financial situation better now versus last year? That's all it is. And I think what's so striking is that since Election Day, it's really plummeted in, in a negative direction where, you know, about 57 percent of people. Well, let me go uh, Inauguration Day uh, on Inauguration Day. About 54 percent of people said that their family finances are about the same versus last year. And now that's at 38 uh, percent have said that. And during the same time. 25% of people are around there uh, said that the, their situation versus last year had gotten worse. And now that is up to 46% of people are saying it has gotten worse. And currently, right now, Ryan, in the United States, according to this poll, 46% of people say their family situation financially has gotten worse versus last year. 38% say that it stayed the same. So what you're looking at there is an overwhelming majority of people who have a financial situation that has not improved. Only 14% of people say that it's gotten better. That is the situation in this country right now. That is reflected in, I think, these shifts in preferences and polling. And in a way, it's its own cultural issue, if you want to say that the media isn't talking about it enough, uh, out of, I guess, concern for the ruling political party. But it seems, like you said earlier, one of those topics that's known and discussed and yet underrated and not talked about enough. Yeah. Um, well, the the inflation, I, I get that people's wages have nominally gone up, but things just clearly cost so much more than what we're used to. 
And it's definitely oh. collectively gone up more than people's wages have gone. I, I got sticker shock yesterday at the grocery store. I don't know if you guys got those uh, is it Americana almonds where they're kind of oily and they're salty. Uh, they don't have a shell and they're delicious. And I ambled over thinking, oh, I want to get maybe one of these, one of the little, little plastic. Can I guess the container. price? Uh, it's a little tiny. It's a little little plastic container of these guys. Let's have you guess the price. Um, seven forty nine. Thirty one dollars. <laughs> I didn't buy them. I didn't buy them. No, you, you know? have to. A man has to have a code. Yeah, I mean, look, the Substack's doing well. It's not going. It's not doing thirty one thirty one dollars for maybe uh nineteen almonds. Well, that's not that's not how great it's going. I mean. That was some sticker shock. I'm experiencing that. I think a lot of people around the country are, and you're not going to be able to gaslight these people and tell them that it's it's okay. And I mean, looking at the tracking poll in uh, in about let's see, uh, when was it? Okay, so before the pandemic, about 38 percent of people said that their situation had gotten better versus last year. We are down to, as I said before, at 14%. I mean, that's just such a big shift. And I'm seeing some of these conversations play we out. We really were cruising economically before March 2020. Yes. Yeah. That was, yes. It was, uh, you know, relatively salad days, I suppose. Um, but no, that's a that's a big shift right there. That That is people watching their finances get depleted and reacting to it. And they're not getting brainwashed. And Paul Krugman or whoever complaining about how the media is presenting this, I don't think uh, is, is being honest. And I don't think they're responding to it. And in a way, I will say it's its own culture war issue. God, I said the term again. God damn it. But it is. <laughs> it's its own culture war issue because I think a lot of cultural power is derived from how successful you seem when you're in control. I think that one of the reasons liberalism won uh, so many of the battles of late is that after the 2000s, where was life going better? Uh, was it going better out in the exurbs? Was it going better out in rural America? Certainly not. It was going much better in the cities where Whole Foods were popping up all over and uh, parks and open spaces were just becoming trendy and the house prices were soaring and everybody, it seemed, wanted to go to a city. It was a proof of concept, right? A proof of concept. That's the phrase that I think uh, should be used more often. That is not the case right now in Blue World. That is not the case right now in these cities. So as much as everybody tries to win some abstract argument on uh, whose morals are better or whose values are better, you've got this lurking issue where the cities uh, are not providing the kind of nice life they once were. And the party in power uh, is presiding over what is an economic disaster and a whole lot of pain. And that and increased crime and the trains don't run on time. All of these things. And that makes your social arguments weaker, I guess, is what I'm arguing. People are less inclined to buy that. I don't know that Ron DeSantis needs to be stopped at any cost over uh, that that bill. Uh, when things are not going as well, is what I'm saying. And, well, and they're going great. Like, business is booming. He has 
he has so much equity to accomplish what he wants because he, his decision to end basically coronavirus mandates before anybody else did has just like been an enormous winning gamble for him. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are ideological, but a lot of people aren't. I always say you and I, I think we would we would respond differently if things were going better in the cities that we lived in or the areas that we that we lived in. We would we would have a different take on things. I I firmly believe that I am somebody who just looks and goes, "Okay, how are things going? I do the Dr. Phil. Uh, How's that working out for you? And that's what I make decisions on the basis of. But it seems like a lot of people in media just think that it's all one big abstraction out there and you just need to win the game of language. And that is everything. Yes, that is important to win these language games. But there is the reality. Um, oh, OK, we've got I, I need to make Scott. I need to get Scott up there as a caller since he's a chat superstar. He's in the queue. We'll take maybe a question maybe two, and then we'll get on out of here. Scott, Scott, how you doing? Hey, guys. Hey, uh, well, I had to Hi. hop in and make sure you knew they were Marcona almonds. And, oh, uh, not Kana? You need to stop shopping at Not Mark, Ma- not, not uh, Mark Kana on- almonds? It's a <laughs> oh, good for Mark some Oakland hey. A's fans. Yeah, hey. I, uh, yep, long-time <laughs> A's season ticket holder, so... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, yeah, and you need to stop shopping at Diablo Foods. That's where. Oh uh, my God! Did you, did you? How did you call that? That was well done. It was uh, Diablo. My mom's been shopping there twice a week for like thirty years, I think. So I, you know, grew up in Lafayette. So Diablo no, Foods, uh, man, I can't. They're too friendly, though, man. It's like I can't resist nice. yeah. the vibe. I'm used to <laughs> Berkeley Bowl, where it's cold, it's aloof. They make you wear a mask, so everybody's shuffling around and not making eye contact. I go to Diablo Foods, and they're like eight Wait, people. Wait, so how far do you drive to not have to wear a mask at the supermarket? Oh no, I live in between the two establishments, so it's uh, it's like fifteen, ten minutes, kind of in in not in either direction. But um, I'm going to bore people about my logistics and reveal too much. I also I have business in Berkeley, which I will say cryptically. It means it's you know where where my wife works. Anyway, you were saying, Scott. Well, yeah, so I, I didn't have, uh, basically just wanted to queue up and see uh, if anything came out of the Klosterman interview that would be interesting to share here. Don't want to, if you don't want to tip oh. anything, I don't know if it's for a future podcast, but I just finished the yeah, 90s sure. and like really enjoyed it. Like there were yes. a few things that like, you know, I was born in 1983, so it was kind of an interesting age for all this stuff, but there was a lot of things that like you know i knew of were you know big cultural things like the unabomber and biosphere too but like actually you know hearing the in-depth recap of them and like biosphere oh, two was just nuts uh yeah. and the unabomber is just the whole like the anti you know technology aspect and like how he actually like his brother got looped in you know for the first time he ever used the internet to like identify him it was it was crazy but yeah i loved i loved the book it was i mean everybody is going to have their critique because something that ambitious people will want whatever covered that wasn't covered and they'll 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 argue which i think is good for him and it's good for that book but i just i found it ridiculously entertaining i probably approached it a little like you did in the generational cohort and he didn't because i think 
he seemed to be a little bit sensitive about the idea of nostalgia when people call yes. it nostalgia, yes. because it's really more explanatory than that. And I was trying to explain uh, that I think for somebody in my generational cohort, it wasn't nostalgia. It was doing something else. It was doing something different where we came into sentience in the 90s. We weren't experiencing it like a Gen X person, like Chuck Klosterman was, where we had kind of a lay of the land as we were watching these changes. No, we were just kind of emerging into the changes. And so it was fascinating to read that book and get an explanation of what these things felt like from the perspective of those going through it. I, I had a take that I don't think he necessarily agreed with, but I believe, and I'll throw it out there. I thought Weird Al Yankovic was almost a, a cultural translator from the young to what the Gen Xers were doing because it was cringe and it was corny, these music videos he was doing of the big music videos of the day. But the big kids weren't really watching, but somebody like myself was watching them as this winking, aren't these big kids silly? And that was kind of <laughs> allowing me to understand that these things were were out there. But um, yeah, I, I we couldn't possibly cover everything in that book. So I, I talked with him for an hour and a half. The pod will be up tomorrow morning. I think I'll make 30 minutes of it, bonus content for subscribers. Um, and I was delighted to speak with him. And so I'm glad that you bring that up. Yeah, no. I, I, had you ever spoken with him before, or was that your first? Time? No, that was our first okay. conversation, which is always. How did weird. you? How did you get in contact with him? Uh, well, we know some mutual people. I tried the first person who came to mind, and it and it worked out. And he was very curious who it was, and so you're playing that weird game where I, I'm not going to be offended if you tell me who it was. As like, well, I told the person that I wouldn't say, and then. You're going back and forth with the whole thing. Can I thing. guess, or was that like rude? You get one guess. You get one guess. I think it was Simmons. It was not. I was not going to go to Bill Simmons with all he's presided over. and uh, But I probably would have if I hadn't managed to get Klosterman's contact info soon enough, just because I really wanted to talk about this book, and I was excited to do it. Um, and it's an ambitious work. And I think it's it's different than a lot of what he's done before. And it, it also bums me out, I will say. I didn't want to full tilt go into this when he was on with me. But it kind of bums me out when I search his name, when I was looking for other takes on it. And I see the kind of viciousness people have uh, towards uh, towards just the guy who's trying to give sharp perspectives and observations and that was also very odd to me. I didn't was that know that with that respect existed. to the book specifically or just generally Klosterman and maybe I think Klosterman and there was some controversy over how he didn't talk about rap enough, according to some people. Mm. And I think, I mean, we're going to talk about all this on the podcast, uh, yeah. but I think a lot of people didn't get the book. They didn't understand it. They, they looked at it and they go, well, why is this white guy not talking about rap enough? Rap was such a big deal uh, and it became so big in the 90s. And they didn't understand that this book wasn't necessarily about the stuff that became influential later on. It was about the stuff that died out it, it, because that's the foreign country that you're visiting. Uh, it's not it, it's not the one that's it's easy to kind of understand the appeal of rap when I'm watching the Super Bowl halftime show in 2022 and guys from the 1990s are up there on the stage. Right. Um, it doesn't feel weird to go back in that moment in time and listen to their music and think about it. It It is weirder when you go back and you get an explanation of what the vibe shift was from heavy metal 
to grunge and what smells like teen spirit was like, right? Because that's not something that is as accessible in the modern culture. So I think that a lot of people just flat out due to perhaps their own narcissism, I don't know, uh, just didn't understand what the book was, even though the book was repeatedly trying to tell them what it was about. Yeah. I think he did give a caveat of like, Hey, I didn't, I wasn't, didn't follow that type of music as much. And like, you know, he spoke to the West coast, East coast stuff, but it was less, you know, it was more kind of, a yeah than like his own in-depth kind of you know as you know following the other kind of music uh, yeah and that. he's got kind of a bigger thesis i think that he spelled out a bit about rock music and what happened with cobain that maybe if i was smarter i would have gotten from the book but until he said it on the podcast i didn't really get it and i was not going to reveal it you know that's just for the people who listen to the podcast so that is my that is my tea, Scott, but I'm, I'm very happy you brought that up. I'm very, uh, it's, it's just a great thing about this kind of job. And Ryan's probably gone through this as well, where the cool thing about journalism, uh, or whatever we want to call it, is that you get to talk to anybody who fascinates you. Um, and so, that's yeah, just, I mean, I, I talked to Ric Flair and Mike Tyson last week, so <laughs> that, that is pretty fucking cool right there at the same time. <laughs> that's not that's not bad you know it's like I, I wonder what the context is you know were you at the strip club with them I, you know what they're, was they're partners in a marijuana brand and <laughs> i talked to them about that then i asked what their opinion on the will smith chris rock slap was and talked about some other stuff oh that's just i would love to get their takes on that and there is a mike tyson section in the 90s book by the way um specifically about when he bit I think Klosterman identifies Tyson biting Holyfield's ear as one of those signifiers that the decade was ending, uh, which was a, a an interesting choice. Uh, but that's that that was his that was his thesis. Um, and yeah, any anyway, it's it's we're very lucky to be able to do that. I know a lot of people, Taylor Lorenz, uh, have a lot of complaints out there about journalism, but I feel. I feel very fortunate to be able to do this. Um, I've had other jobs and, and this one's pretty good. So on that note, uh, thank you to Scott. Thank you to all the listeners. Thank you to Ryan uh, for filling out the docket, allowing me to be the shooting guard I was born to be. Uh, Ryan, do you have anything to plug right now as we do the outro? Um, read my Flair Tyson stuff. Um I did one about how their marijuana partnership came together and then one on Flair and him um, reacting to the Will Smith uh, slap, which I thought was, um, they were funny. But yeah. yeah, that just read my stuff at the post. And I appreciate this is our this is our biggest live audience yet. Yeah. So hopefully it translates on the on demand as well. Yeah, we will be doing the uh, ratings analysis even for ourselves we do not sleep we do not rest uh but stay safe out there everybody until next time see you all right bye good job by you that good job by you good job by you sal <laughs>